Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Outgoing UW System President and former Governor Tommy Thompson said that he was, quote, surprised and seemingly disappointed that the Board of Regents chose UCLA Law School Dean Jennifer Manukin instead of the current UW-Madison Provost. Thompson said, quote, hopefully she comes here with an open mind and not a California philosophy that she seems to have articulated, end quote. He concluded his comments by saying, now that she's been chosen, we have to get behind her and support her. The Cap Times reports that a major affordable housing development is being proposed for the vacant Gardner Bakery site at East Washington Avenue and Fair Oaks. The proposal by the Wisconsin Housing Preservation Corporation would create 245 apartments in four buildings ranging from two to five stories. Mike Slavish, the CEO of the Development Corporation, said he was optimistic about the overall support from the neighborhood, but pointed out that much of the feedback he received was around the future of stationing of F-35s at nearby Truax Field. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 2,192 confirmed new cases of COVID in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state's seven-day average to 2,088 new cases every day over the past week. Additionally, around 13.6% of all COVID tests have been positive over the last week. There was one new confirmed death from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday. Here in Dane County, there were 334 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, with 46 people currently hospitalized from the virus. And that's a compendium of the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Wisconsin school districts received $2.4 billion in pandemic relief funds over the past two years. New research from the Wisconsin Policy Forum shows that districts used the funds in the early months of the pandemic to finance immediate needs, but forthcoming federal deadlines and other constraints have shifted priorities. Our reporter, Reed Kamai, has the story. A new report from the nonprofit Wisconsin Policy Forum breaks down how school districts in the state have used their federal pandemic relief funds. That relief came in three rounds. The first, as part of the CARES Act, signed in March of 2020, the second as part of the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplemental Appropriations Act, or CURSA, signed in December of 2020, and the third from the American Rescue Plan, signed in March of 2021. From the first round of packages, the study showed that more than 90% of relief funds were used across three categories, educational technology, preparedness and response to COVID-19, and addressing long-term school closure. When the second round of aid came in last year, the school year was beginning, and much had changed with regards to the pandemic. Sarah Shaw authored the report. She says that addressing the long-term closures of schools became the larger focus within that package. And that seems to make sense that after the first wave of investments happens, the first shock of COVID comes in, districts are now figuring, trying to figure out how do we invest such that we can keep operating as a school um, and, and be out of crisis mode so much and, and more being able to meet our kids' needs on a regular, ongoing basis. School districts were forced to wait longer than anticipated to learn their allocation of the third relief package due to delays in the U.S. Department of Education approving the state's plan. Without knowing how much money they would be receiving, 
Shaw says districts struggled to plan. The difference came in more for districts that were smaller and had smaller percentages of students from low-income households, where that swing could be pretty large and not knowing um, what their allocation would be could really um, affect their ability to budget effectively. School districts are now on their third round of pandemic funding. There's a ticking clock to use those funds in the next two and a half years. Schools have barely dug into this round of pandemic funding, about 0.6 percent at the time of the report. Shaw is concerned that this could lead to unwise spending. And I do think that there is a risk that districts will engage in less than strategic spending for the sake of spending at all. Um, And it's been, I think it's important to recognize that it's been very difficult for district leaders to step away from the ongoing COVID crisis to figure out what to do with these dollars in a way that is, number one, fiscally responsible, number two, makes a difference for kids, and number three, can account for Um, something rather unique in Wisconsin, which is the freeze on state revenue limits. The revenue limit freeze, coupled with inflation, has constrained school districts financially. Many may find themselves having to use relief funds to cover ongoing costs instead of putting them towards their original priorities. Some districts now feel like they have to choose between using these one-time funds to help cover inflationary expenses, which can create a uh, a lot of uncertainty and a potential fiscal cliff, when those one-time funds run out, or not keeping up with inflation in their normal operational costs, which may or may not be a thing they can even choose to do for the sake of maintaining the focus on uh, what they what they wanted to do originally with these dollars in terms of one-time investments, particularly those with benefit for kids. Shaw urges districts to make one-time investments now that will pay dividends later, like boosting facilities, infrastructure, and professional development for staff. So my, my, my big tips are, number one, start with what do you know about what your kids need and allocate according to that. And number two, think about what are those one-time investments that can, can pay dividends in the long run. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. Inflation is not a new topic to the Dane County Board. Since the onset of the pandemic, the board has been fighting rising costs on every project they've been involved with, uh, most notably the jail consolidation project. After County Executive Joe Parisi announced yesterday that the price of a new jail has risen once again, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt set out to learn just how inflation is affecting other projects in the county. Earlier this spring, the Dane County Board of Supervisors hit a snag in the jail consolidation project. As the price of labor materials skyrocketed with inflation, the price tag jumped to $16 million more than anticipated when the project was originally approved in 2019. The final plan would build a new jail to close the aging jail in the city-county building and leave an option to close the outdated Ferris Huber Center down the road. But yesterday, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced that the plan approved in March will now cost around $10 million more than that, bringing the total cost of the project to $176 million. That means the board will need to approve additional funding for the project for the second time this year. Patrick Miles is the new Dane County board chair. He says that the new increase in price is not a total surprise. I think, you know, as as the case with most most construction projects these days, the, the driving cost increase factor is the dramatic increase in cost of labor. Given the competition, you know, the demand for so many construction projects right now and companies having trouble filling positions, and then material costs. 
have also gone up considerably. Miles says that while the Dane County Jail has definitely seen the biggest increase in price, it is not uncommon these days for the price of projects to jump up. Usually, when the county creates a budget for a project, such as the jail, they will include a buffer to account for any unexpected price increases. We don't have anything on the scale like we're talking about with the jail, but I know we've seen a number of change orders on smaller projects like some of the stuff going on at the landfill, updates to the biogas facility and, and whatnot. So and and there's been probably delays in getting materials as well. It's not just cost, but some of these things have been running behind schedule because of supply chain issues. The budget amendment to continue the jail consolidation project must pass a three-quarter vote on the board and has to be approved by August 18th to keep the project on track. The reason why the jail keeps seeing such larger price increases than other projects is simple. Building a new jail is complex. Chuck Hicklin is the chief financial officer for Dane County. Hicklin says that in his 20 years of working for Dane County, he has never seen such an unpredictable market. He says that smaller projects, such as repaving roads with asphalt, have fewer moving pieces in play than a project such as a jail. Therefore, it is much easier for them to find more exact costs for the materials needed for the project. But larger projects like the jail have many more interdependent materials. If any of those materials aren't available, the whole project stalls. You can't install a door locking mechanism without a door. Hicklin says that when this happens, that affects not only the cost of materials, but also the cost of labor to wait around for those materials. For example, Hicklin points to the new sheriff's office in Stoughton, which was supposed to open last year. That project was, they were supposed to move in last, like, November. And, oh, I mean, you know, the contractor was done. It was not a problem. I mean, they were doing well getting everything done, but there were certain fixed, like light fixtures they couldn't get. They just couldn't get them. So we had to wait three months and moved in three months late. I mean, the project was, you know, 99% done, but for a few things that were necessary to get the occupant, to, you know, to allow for occupancy. So we had to delay our move in. This also means that contractors are less likely to bid on projects that come from a government agency. And the fewer contractors who bid on a project, the higher it's going to cost. So one thing that's a bit unique, you know, about a public project is you design the project and then you bid the project. And when that price comes in, that's, you know, you're, the contractor's signing a contract for that full amount, period. Like, unless there's a change in the scope. They run into something that they didn't expect or something, you know, we make a decision to do something cheaper. They're obligated to build for that fixed price. Inflation is not just hitting the county either. Nearly every level of government is facing similar issues, Hicklin says. Earlier this week, the Capital Times reported that the price tag associated with the Madison Metro School District's referendum construction would cost an additional $28 million, due largely in part to inflation. When it went before voters back in 2020, that project was already expected to cost $317 million and will help renovate all high schools in the district. Construction on that project is already underway. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.17 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
The recent baby formula shortage has renewed interest in a more natural alternative for infants who must depend on formula, human breast milk provided by donors. Earlier today, WORT reporter Catherine Garvins spoke with Summer Kelly, executive director of Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes, to learn more about this alternative. I'm speaking today with Summer Kelly. Summer is the executive director of Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. Summer, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So why don't we start by just, uh, if you could tell us about your organization, uh, what your organization does, and how you got started. Sure. So we actually started right there in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, Years ago, around 2005, an organization in Wisconsin formed by nurses and doctors came together to start looking at milk banking options. At that time, there was no milk bank in the state of Wisconsin, so they worked with Angel Flight and volunteer pilots to fly milk to the Ohio Milk Bank. So we have a really cool beginning story right there in Madison, Wisconsin, and flights would leave from the airport in Madison and the airport in Oshkosh. So there were two milk drop-off sites that allowed moms in Wisconsin to donate milk to help premature babies in the NICU. And that's really why we exist, is to collect human milk from breastfeeding moms. We pasteurize it, we test it, and then we send it right back out to the community to neonatal intensive care units so that premature babies can have access to pasteurized donor human milk. And it really helps with their hospital stay. It helps prevent diseases and complications. So we provide donor milk to hospitals all throughout Wisconsin. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how the role of the organization has changed, if at all, since the formula shortage began earlier this year? Yeah, so like I said earlier, we primarily serve hospitalized babies, babies in the NICU, babies in the hospital setting, but we've always served babies at home as well. So we already were working within that model of serving outpatients. Those are babies at home that may have medical needs, or they could be healthy babies at home and their families just want to give a little bit of donor milk to give those antibodies and all of those amazing bioactive factors. So we had a system of milk pickup sites already established, and the very first one was in Madison, Wisconsin at Hoey Apothecary. So that's a local pharmacy there in Madison. And Kevin Hoey, the owner, and his amazing team of pharmacists and technicians um, were really forward thinkers, and they started the donor milk dispensary or pickup site there so that families in Madison could go access milk um, in a pinch. And now that has really paid off years later um, in light of the formula shortage because families are in a pinch right now. They're going from store to store. You know, we're getting calls here at the milk bank. We can hear the anxiety in their voices. Um, So places like, like Hoey Apothecary and the other dispensaries we have throughout Wisconsin are really important because families can go and pick up milk for emergency use. So since I would say about within the past month, we've seen a 20% increase in families reaching out for milk. And luckily, Catherine, we've also seen an increase in moms wanting to donate milk, which is fantastic. So moms are watching the news, they're listening to programs like this, and they're calling us asking how they can help. So we are just so appreciative to all of our superhero moms all throughout Wisconsin and Illinois that are answering the call to help these families struggling to find formula right now. 
I, I read on your website that uh, families of healthy babies, which is one of your priorities, may purchase up to 40 ounces of breast milk. Can you put that into some context for me? Like, how long will this feed an infant or keep in the freezer? And what's the cost of a breast milk versus the formula? Yeah, and I think that's a great number, Catherine, the 40-ounce number to kind of help families during the formula crisis because... Donor milk is really intended for short-term emergency use for for healthy babies during the formula crisis. It's not a replacement for formula. Um, So 40 ounces is about one to two days worth of feeding. And that comes out to, you know, each bottle, which is four ounces, comes out to about $18 to $20, depending on the location that they go to pick up the milk. So it can range anywhere from, you know, $75 to a little bit over $100 for a one to two day supply. So you can see that it's it's more expensive than formula. It really is just intended for that short short term use, um, kind of like an emergency use. So the milk that is dispensed um, at the pickup sites is about $18 to $20 for a four ounce bottle. I know that there have been some concerns around the safety of sharing breast milk that I saw that was mostly focused on informal sharing versus the milk bake process. Can you talk a little bit about safety measures that are put in place from donation to distribution? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. We have multiple layers of safety here at the Milk Bank. We are registered with the Food and Drug Administration as a food manufacturing facility, so we are subject to inspection, and we follow all of the requirements that the FDA provides for food manufacturers. We're also inspected and regulated by the Illinois Department of Public Health, our local health department, and we are accredited by the Human Milk Banking Association. So what that all means is that we have a very tightly controlled process that includes donor screening. We have physician and nurse review of all donor charts and donor applications. We blood test donors. So I think a good model to compare us to is the blood banking model where, you know, blood uh, donors are blood tested before the milk goes out. We, We employ that model of blood testing for safety. Then when the milk reaches us here at the milk bank, we pull it together and we pasteurize it. So that's a gentle heat treatment that kills bacteria and viruses, but it maintains the important bioactive factors of human milk, like antibodies. After that, we test it for bacteria, and we also do drug testing on the milk. Um, So we have a very extensive testing protocol, um, and in 37-year history of all milk banks in the Human Milk Banking Association of North America, there has never been a single instance or report of any harm coming to any infant. So this is a tried and true process of milk banking, and we're just really proud to be part of a system with such an amazing safety record. So if a woman is interested in donating breast milk, what are her first steps and and how long does the screening process take? Yeah, so we try to make donation as easy as possible for our donors. Our, Our superhero moms that call in to save tiny lives all throughout Wisconsin and Illinois. So we definitely have been working to streamline this process. Any interested moms can go to our website, 
milkbankwgl.org. They can click on the Donate Milk button, and that will start the process. There's a really simple intake form, and then we walk through the donor through all of the steps. So we talk to them on the phone for a screening. We send them some paperwork to complete. We send them for blood testing. And we do have a mobile lab option in Madison. So, um, you know, for families that live in Madison, we can send uh, a mobile phlebotomist right to their house to draw their blood. And that has been incredibly convenient. And that has really sped up the process for blood testing and for donor screening. Then when we get the blood testing results back, we let mom know and she could drop her milk off at a convenient drop-off site in Madison. So there are a couple locations in Madison where moms can go drop their milk off once they're approved. The entire process can take about two weeks. Um, it could take a little bit longer if, you know, we're waiting on the paperwork to come back or if, if it takes a little while to, to schedule the blood draw. But the entire process usually takes about two weeks from, from start to finish. I'm assuming also if, if a mother is interested in ordering breast milk, she would also go to your, to your website. And what's the timeline typically from, say, the healthy baby option and having breast milk delivered to homes? Yeah, so for families in the Madison area, when they want to pick up milk, um, especially if it's in case of an emergency, they can go to our website. We have a brand new formula shortage education page with instructions. And we do have a list of all of those convenient pickup sites. So um, the first one on the list uh, for Madison would be Hoey Apothecary. Families can call to check hours of operation and to check the stock of donor milk. And then they can just zip right over and pick up milk immediately. So that is a very fast option for families. If they do have a medical need or if they need a larger volume of milk, uh, they can contact us here at the Milk Bank and we can ship milk overnight. So I've been talking with Summer Kelly, the Executive Director of Mother's Milk Bank of Western Great Lakes, about milk banking, another option in the ongoing infant formula shortage. Summer, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks so much, Catherine. Take care. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half. There's a lot more coming at you. Our newest feature, Parks and Landmarks, will take us to Indian Lake County Park. Madison in the 60s covers a raucous demonstration over city buses. And we may have some interesting thunderstorms coming at us tomorrow night ahead of a much cooler week ahead. I'll give you all the details on that in the second half. But first, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. This week, we introduce our newest feature, Parks and Landmarks, exploring different, uh, well, parks and landmarks. Feature producer Sean Bull kicks off his feature with a trip to Indian Lake County Park, northwest of Madison. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of underrated places outdoors. I'm Sean Bull, 
And today, we're starting off simple with a trip to Indian Lake County Park. Indian Lake is one of 26 recreation parks managed by Dane County. It's roughly 10 miles northwest of Middleton, but easily accessible as it's just a short detour off US-12. The park's roughly 800 acres are centered around a wide valley with a small lake in the middle. It's this lake that gives the park its name, so you might be surprised that the lake itself offers few opportunities for recreation. The lake at Indian Lake is surrounded almost entirely by wetland plants, tall grass, and wildflowers. There are maintained paths all over the place, but none of them actually go down to the lakeshore. The placement of the paths and numerous wooden benches along them suggests that you're supposed to appreciate the water from a distance. In this instance, I think that's the right approach. There is a designated boat launch, but I don't think I've ever seen it used for that purpose. People who are used to paddling around Madison are unlikely to be impressed by Indian Lake's waterfront offerings. The whole thing is less than half the size of Lake Monona's Brittingham Bay, so don't rush to bring your kayaks up here from the city. I suspect, if anything, people bring their boats here to fish, but that's about it. So, if people don't really swim or canoe much out here, what's the point? The people who built this park could have left the lake off limits to everyone but the local wildlife. Yet, the boat launch exists, and it's a whole separate entrance way on the other side of the lake from the main parking lot. Why did the county build a whole second driveway just to have access to an unremarkable body of water? The answer lies with the real focus of the west end of the park. Dogs. Many of the Madison area's best dog parks are managed by Dane County, to the point where they've basically got building new ones down to a formula. County dog parks are usually accessed by their own parking lot and have, at minimum, their own outhouses. The play areas will be two flat, grassy rectangles hemmed in by wire fencing, one for general use, one for small dogs only. This archetype works well, it's cheap to build, and facilitates a low-stress social environment for dogs and dog owners of all kinds. If that's the model of the normal Dane County dog park, then Indian Lake must be targeted at advanced dogs especially. On the map, the west end of the park is denoted the pet exercise area, but there's no fence to mark the boundaries as you look around. Instead, you find the same wide grassy paths as everywhere else, only now populated by dogs roaming free. If it gets too hot out in the field, that's where the lake comes in. Dog and man alike can cool off by jumping off the dock or walking straight in down the ramp. Of course, some of this is conjecture on my part. I've never visited Indian Lake during truly hot weather, although my first trip was unseasonably warm for a February. The Indian Lake I know is nothing but brown grass, bare trees, and muddy trails, but I love it anyway. A lot of this has to do with the park's terrain. Indian Lake is just on the edge of Wisconsin's unglaciated, driftless region, and you can tell as soon as you turn left off of Highway 12. The road leading up to the park snakes between steeper and more frequent hills than we're used to in the flat part of the Badger State. Amidst these ridges, you'll still find farms. Rows of grain or beans snake their way down the valleys. But every hill has a point at which it becomes too steep to plow. This means that most of the ridges in this region are topped with trees, 
but cleared or grassy down below. In a satellite view, this creates a mesmerizing pattern. Green and gold striations all over the driftless. On the ground, this dichotomy means that you can hike between habitats quickly. From the main parking lot, you can either walk down along the lake or up to the top of the ridge within 10 minutes. The path up is narrow in spots, muddy in others, but it's constructed in such a way as to give you the best possible view all the way up. After a few minutes, the trail stops its ascent, and you find yourself under a canopy of hardwoods. Off to one side of the trail, a building, no bigger than a garden shed, sits behind a spiky black iron fence. The hut doesn't have many exterior details, but the cross atop its roof makes its purpose unmistakable. This is St. Mary of the Oaks. I'm sure there are rules that make this technically not true, but I'm going to call it the smallest Catholic church in Wisconsin. At first glance, this gray box with a pointed roof seems a bit out of place. Like, who put a child's drawing of a church in the middle of a forest? But, simplistic design aside, the craftsmanship is still impressive. Sure, there are people dedicated to its preservation, but the structure has stood mostly unchanged for 165 years. The inside, for what it's worth, is actually kinda cozy. The walls are the same smooth mortar as the outside, but painted white. There's a window in each sidewall and stained glass in the door, so the little space is plenty bright even without so much as a candle going. A guest book sits atop the wooden altar. You can record your visit and leave a little message if you wish. While bigger churches are monuments to the glory of God, St. Mary of the Oaks is a modest space, perfect for a moment of reflection. If you'd rather look outward than inward, Indian Lake has you covered too. Not 20 yards past the chapel, the trail opens up again, terminating in a spectacular lookout. Beyond a low wood guardrail, the ridge drops off, permitting a view of Indian Lake and the verdant hills and valleys beyond. When a single farmer hauled all those stones up here to build that chapel, perhaps this is what he was thanking God for. It's tempting to look at a park with such a long history as a finished work, but there's always more to be done. Recently, Dane County announced the beginning of a process to improve Indian Lake and a neighboring wildlife area. If you would like to take part in the planning, there's a meeting coming up on Monday, June 6th at 5.30 p.m. The meeting will be in-person only at the Berry Town Hall. If you'd like more information, you can find it at danecountyparks.com. For WORT, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it's a bit hard to reckon now that it was 91 degrees last Wednesday, given that we were uh, 30 plus degrees cooler today. In fact, we were uh, the same temperature today as two Wednesdays ago. We hit 61 degrees, which... Uh, 
even two Wednesdays ago was several degrees below normal. I don't need to add that it's below normal for today. We're going to get a boost in our temperatures tomorrow, but the medium term is looking decidedly cooler with temperatures uh, as we get into this weekend and beyond, more like uh, late April, say, than late May. The cool-off does look to be transient, but you may need some patience. Uh, after tomorrow, I'm not expecting to see temperatures return to uh, anything approaching normal again until, I think, the end of next week at the earliest, by which time uh, we should be seeing temperatures in the mid-70s for daytime highs, and I think we're going to be well short of that by and large this coming week. We'll have a more progressive and zonal upper air pattern over us through the coming 10 days than we saw last week when we were much more amplified. So we will be seeing some regular passing waves and air mass transitions coming up, but by and large we'll have a jet stream position in a fairly uh, southward uh, slot for this time of year with quite cool air and upper troughing covering a good portion of Canada by this coming weekend with the cool air then working south into the northern tier of states as we go into next week. You can get a flavor of the upper pattern over us currently by having a glance at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. And on that image, you can see the primary energy of the jet stream moving west to east across roughly the 50th parallel or so. That would be the Canadian border region with plenty of waviness in that jet, including a small gyre of low pressure that's currently approaching Lake Superior with a modest upper ridge then behind it over the uh, Dakotas and Montana, and yet one more swirl of energy approaching behind that, crossing southern British Columbia currently. The wave to our north over Minnesota is going to swing a weak cool front at us through this coming overnight period, which will not have a whole lot of effect beyond veering winds a bit more westerly. The stronger low that's out over British Columbia will then pass on a similar track going north of us tomorrow, it's going to be grabbing significantly colder air on its backside circulation, though, which it will pull down the plains to our west, amplifying an upper trough out there, which will then slowly progress east over the coming weekend, cooling us in the process. In the nearer term, as the low uh, out west moves north of us tomorrow, it's going to rotate warmer air and moisture northward ahead of it, producing enough low-level energy in the atmosphere by tomorrow evening to perhaps set off a severe weather outbreak somewhere near or west of us, probably to our west. So far, it appears that high and mid-level cloud cover here may limit our warming some as we go through tomorrow, and that may play something of a role in just how much exposure we do get to severe weather later on. Well, we will have a good low-level directional veering in the air column overhead, but upward-directed potential energy will be a little on the short side for us. It's quite likely that the more energy-laden high dew point air to our southwest won't really make it in here until sometime after dark tomorrow, so we're likely to see the initial eruption, uh, eruption of late-day thunderstorms taking place to our west and north over Iowa and Minnesota. Uh, where the storms may well start out supercellular. There's a little unclarity yet about how those thunderstorms will then evolve as they begin moving eastward and whether cold pooling of their downdrafts might help possibly push them this far southeast or whether most of the action will pass to our north tomorrow night. You might want to keep up with the latest information from the Storm Prediction Center tomorrow on that score. Otherwise, we'll be cooling then on Friday with showers and thunderstorms likely passing at least in the morning hours of that day. 
Saturday, it appears that a secondary pulse of energy lifting northeastward along the Baraclinic zone or the area of stronger winds aloft that will be ahead of that approaching colder air to our west. That may give us another round of rains on Saturday, uh, though short-range modeling is, is divided about the placement and extent of that precipitation. We should clear out then more for Sunday, though temperatures are likely to be confined uh, to around 60 at best, even with clearer skies. It does look like we're not going to approach anything like frost levels. We go forward from there. I think the uh, upper 30s or low 40s are the lowest we'll go as we go through the early part of next week. But back to tonight, passing clouds will uh, be clearing a little bit more. Not entirely, I don't think. Temperatures will drop back to the low 50s on light southwesterly winds. Tomorrow, passing high and mid-level clouds, by and large, will be uh, slow, uh, slowing our warming process through the day. Despite southwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour, backing more southerly through the day and increasing as well. Temperatures should reach uh, perhaps the mid or possibly upper 70s by the late day hours, with dew points coming up into the mid or upper 50s. Active south-southwesterly winds uh, through the overnight period, up at 10 to 18 miles per hour, will hold temperatures in the upper 60s, so a warm overnight. The dew points also will come up into the lower mid-60s, so the warmest feeling part of the day tomorrow may be at 8 or 9 at night. Thunderstorms may then rumble into the area, I think, as we get on towards midnight or after. That's the most likely scenario, possibly early, earlier, depending upon how things do develop to our west. Showers and thunderstorms are then likely to uh, be passing through about the first half of Friday, uh, holding temperatures to just the upper 60s or around 70 on veering westerly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. We'll cool towards 50 during the overnight under cloudy skies, possibly with uh, passing showers still. And Saturday is a tough call, but uh, passing kind of showery precipitation is uh, fairly likely that day, at least it turns or at least over parts of the listening area. And that is going to suppress the thermometer probably in the uh, just the mid or upper 50s for high temperatures on northwesterly winds that day at 8, 5 to 10 miles per hour. The precipitation should move northeast out of the area Saturday night and uh, clear us out for a high temperature in the upper 50s to around 60 on Sunday. It is currently 59 degrees uh, down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 49. Generally clear overhead, just some passing cumulus up at about 4,000 feet, some uh, higher clouds passing above that. Winds are uh, nominally southwest, but uh, near calm at just at the moment. Winds, uh, the uh, barometer is at 29.73 inches of mercury and falling. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
We go now to May 1967 for an early start on the Summer of Love, featuring Allen Ginsberg and the Fugues and a unique protest that brings chaos to city streets. Stu Levitan has all the groovy details on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, May 1967. In a year when many campuses have demonstrations against the war, the draft, and the CIA, only Madison has a disruptive protest over a wrong way bus lane. When the reconstructed University Avenue opened in November 1966, the entire university community warned that having one eastbound lane for buses running against the four westbound lanes was dangerous, especially since several intersections didn't have traffic lights. Everyone's worst fears were realized on March 1st, when campus beauty queen Donna Schuler walked into the side of a bus and was injured so badly her left leg had to be amputated. Everyone from student government to the regents pleaded with the city to move the bus lane over to the newly expanded one-way eastbound Johnson Street, but the city refused. It's computer sciences professor Leonard Eurer, on behalf of the Committee to Save the Bus Lane for Bicycles, who plans the protest. It's to be a lawful demonstration, with students massed at the intersections of University and Brooks and Charter Streets, where the lack of a traffic light gives pedestrians the right of way. When a bus approaches, they'll pack the crosswalk. The demonstration begins as planned at 3 p.m. on May 17th, with Professor Eurer and a few hundred students walking west on the University Avenue sidewalks, crossing very slowly at every intersection to hold up traffic. But then an advanced squad breaks away and encounters an eastbound bus at Brook Street. Chanting, illegal and immoral, several students spontaneously drop their bikes to block the bus and get on the ground themselves. Hundreds of reinforcements rush up in support, both on their feet and on the ground. Forcibly clearing a path for the bus to escape, police arrest 15, including the leading campus protester, Bob Cohen. The crowd of participants and supportive observers is now about 3,000. For the next three hours, students use their bodies and their bikes to block the buses. When the buses reroute to Johnson Street, students follow and back again. Police make another 25 arrests, including Cohen for a second time, and history grad student Paul Soglin, who had just resigned as a member of the WSA Student Senate. Some are arrested for blocking buses, some for cursing out the cops. A half dozen are arrested after a group of 300 surrounds a squad car and accosts the officer inside. Most end up paying small fines. Late that night, an unaffiliated group of about 300 boisterous young men stage a combination panty raid march to the Capitol. They rock a city bus, break a window, and block University Avenue. There are no arrests. On Thursday, May 18th, the City Traffic Commission votes unanimously to continue the bus lane with new safeguards, two more traffic lights, a wider walkway, and a barrier to prevent mid-block crossing. Madison Bus Company President William Staub, a voting member of the commission, 
does not participate in the discussion or decision. Unfortunately for the political demonstrators, another panty raid and water fight Thursday night grows into the biggest campus disorder in years. Police make six arrests as they battle up to 2,500 students who smash lights on State Street and at the state capitol, invade women's dorms, and disrupt traffic throughout downtown. Though this second disturbance is entirely unrelated to the bus demonstration, neither the public nor politicians make any distinction. When the bus-based demonstrations and disruptions continue Friday morning, Teamster Union officials order the bus drivers not to drive through the campus, and the company routes buses down Regent Street instead. At about 2.30 in the afternoon, with chaos still raging, they stop driving all routes, a complete shutdown of all bus service throughout the city until Saturday morning, when cops on every corner restore order. The people of this city are furious at the university, says Mayor Otto Feske. The Common Council certainly is, unanimously adopting resolutions that the university, quote, take direct disciplinary action with respect to students who deliberately and flagrantly violate state law and city ordinances. And they want the university to reimburse the city $2,700 for special police services. Reflecting the growing political threat from the legislature, the state assembly jumps in, voting 86 to 9 for a harshly worded resolution condemning both students and the administration. And at least one powerful regent wants the administration to, quote, find some way to reprimand Professor Ewer for his activism. While we may not have the legal right to discipline, says Regent Dr. James Nellen, team physician for the Green Bay Packers, quote, we have the moral right to do so. A completely shocking concept, replies Regent Arthur DeBartle-Baden, an attorney from Park Falls. Fesky says police, quote, will crack students' heads together if necessary to restore order and demands the university, quote, obtain copies of the police reports and call these students in for discipline. Chancellor Robin Fleming, who's already announced he's leaving to become president of the University of Michigan, says he will neither discipline students for non-academic offenses nor crack their heads. A week later, the council votes to retain the bus lane and implement the commission's safety recommendations. In June, seven months after the wrong way bus lane opened, the city installs traffic lights at Charter and Brook Streets. And the weekend before the bus protest, Quixote Literary Journal jump-started the Summer of Love. On Saturday the 12th, journal founders Morris and Betsy Edelson bring Allen Ginsberg and the Fugs to the Stock Pavilion, where they entrance and excite a near-capacity crowd of 1,700 with Third Coast Sutra. It's an evening of profane and profound beat poetry and avant-garde rock. Ginsburg reads Kral Mayales, King of May, his ode to Beatlemania, Portland Coliseum, and First Party at Ken Kesey's with Hell's Angels. And the Fugs perform Slum Goddess of the Lower East Side and Wet Dream Over You. On Sunday the 13th, a chanting Ginsburg dressed in white, the Fugs, and a crowd of hundreds venture to Picnic Point to dance, sing, eat, love, and get high at Madison's most successful bee-in of the season. It's sponsored by Quixote, the Wisconsin Film Society, and Zach Burke's Open Arts Group. And here's what Roundy says in the State Journal of May 25th, quote, 
Bobby Hines showed the old-time university boxing pictures the other day. I want to see them again. When boxing was at Wisconsin, you didn't see no demonstrations then. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline, headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporters were Reed Kamai and Catherine Garvins. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan and a special welcome to our newest feature producer, Sean Bull. Chuck Kiedemann engineered tonight's broadcast and Nate Weggehaupt produced it. Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>